We are in this series titled Bad Boys of Easter, where we're looking at the villains of the Easter story. Because um, there's, we're going to find out that there might be, if we're going to be humble enough to allow it, we're gonna, there might be a little bit of them inside all of us, as we learned last week. Last week, I started the message with an observation. If you remember, if you were here last week, I said, Christians often resist the God we say we trust. And then we learned about that and how Caiaphas was the high priest, and he should have been the one to know exactly what God was doing and recognize God. But when God came in the way he did when Jesus, when he showed up, Jesus didn't fit Caiaphas' mold, so Caiaphas resisted the God he said he trusted. And he was the high priest, which shows us that anybody can fall victim to that. This week, the observation is, and and for just a second, I need you to understand this comes from a loving heart, but it's just true. So if you're a believer, this is for you. Christians attempt to bargain with God even though we have nothing to offer. Have you noticed that? That Christians, we often bargain with God even though we have nothing to offer. I mean, what do you offer the creator of the universe? God doesn't sit in heaven and sit and go, man, if they just give me a little bit of their money, I will do these things for them because I just, if we bargain with him. He doesn't sit in heaven and go, let me get some of that. If they start coming on Sundays, I'm going to start doing this. If they start behaving this way, I'm going to, that's not the way it works, but we often bargain with God and it becomes a God, I will, if you will relationship. God, I will do this, Lord, if you do this thing. And it sounds something like this. Lord, I will start attending church again. I will start attending church faithfully every single Sunday if you give me that Maserati I've been praying for, right? Maybe that's not it. Maybe that's not you. God, I will begin attending church every Sunday if you just fix what's going on in our marriage. God, I will start attending, or I will start giving the 10% after you give me the job. God, I will start doing this if you begin to do this. God, I will start reading my Bible if you make sure mom doesn't get sick again. God, I'll start praying again. I'll start praying again if you make sure dad's all right. God, I'll start praying again if you bring my prodigal back. And again, we wouldn't say that we bargain with God because that feels uncomfortable and every one of us get a little like, you know, a little, ugh, I don't like that. But the truth is, that's what those statements are, us bargaining with our Heavenly Father. God, if you will, then I will. And maybe for some of you, that's part of your story. You expected God to do the thing that you wanted him to. You expected it to look a certain way. And when it did not, you got frustrated. You got angry because you expected God to sign a check. He never said he would. And then before you know it, you feel like your faith is a little weaker. And maybe for some of you, that's your story. Maybe you expected God to show up in a particular way. You had an I will, if you will, relationship with God. And then when God didn't show up the way you expected him to in your playbook and you sent it, you know, you sent him the email, you sent him the information, God, this is when I need you, what time I need you, where I need you to be. And when he didn't show up that way, you lost your faith or took a step away from him. 
And I'm not poking fun at that, and I'm not trying to say how dare you or anything like that. It's just simply an observation and the fact that we all do this. So before any of you Christians in the room, before any of us get a little bit too self-righteous and say, I don't ever do that, I'm going to argue that we do. I'm going to argue that it happens from time to time. Because when that begins to happen, when that mindset takes over, it all of a sudden becomes all about what God can do for you, not what God can do through you. And when you are a follower of Christ, I hate to tell you this, you ain't the star of the story, okay? I know they say different things on the televangelist channel, but that ain't true, okay? That's not, it's, it's not all about you. It's actually what God can do through you for other people. That's part of the reason that our vision is to love God, love people, and that last part's really, really important, make a difference. We want to make a difference in every community, in every city that we can. But when this happens and it becomes about what God can do for you, you begin to leverage God's authority and power in your life for yourself. You begin to sit back and say things like, I'm going to, or I'll do this, and God will, and then you leverage or find ways to leverage your devotion, come on somebody, for your benefit. Because God, I'm devoted, you have to do this. God, I showed up, you have to do this, right? And uh, we're gonna find out that today's character actually had a little bit of that attitude and had a little bit of that uh, idea of leveraging God for himself. Our character today was a con artist of the finest degree. You've met people like our character today. Um, he, he always had three sides to every story. You've met these people. You know, the, the right side, the wrong side, and then their side. Come on, somebody. Everybody look up here. Don't look around. All right? Don't look, don't look at your neighbor. Teenagers, don't look at mom and dad. Just stay right here, okay? No reason for, you know, we don't need a fist fight in the parking lot, okay? And it's easy to get frustrated with today's character. It's so easy because he's a villain of Easter. He's a bad boy of Easter. So it's so simple to get angry with him and say, how dare he? I can't believe it. Do you imagine? And of course, that's how we feel naturally. But the truth is, if we're honest with ourselves and we unpack it, we kind of find there's a little bit of this character in every one of us. And the character is Judas Iscariot. Now, right now, every one of you go, okay, pastor, that's enough. I mean, I'll understand. I am good with being high, the high priest Caiaphas, but you're going to compare me to the one that betrayed Jesus? No, pastor. Well, hold on. Before you get too frustrated or get too against it, I'm going to argue that Judas wasn't any different than the other disciples. He wasn't any different except for one key act. Because if you pay attention, Judas also expected Jesus to be the king. He expected Jesus to be the king. Jesus, for Judas, was a means to an end. It was no different for the other disciples. He, they, he was a means to an end. He was not the only person that was treating Jesus this way or acting this way towards Jesus. And Judas would, as well as all the other disciples, eventually leave Jesus alone to be abandoned, beaten, and hung on a cross. Nobody showed up expecting, nobody tried to get him off the cross, nobody showed up. All of the disciples. Peter, who was the most devout, denied Jesus publicly three times. So before we get too hard on Judas, 
before we get a little bit too over the top with him, let's remember, he was just like the other disciples. And some of us feel a little uncomfortable with that, and we should. There's a tension there that we're going to manage in just a second. They knew that Jesus would be king. And the Old Testament talked about what a king was going to be like. They knew what the expectation of a king was. And so they expected Jesus to restore the kingdom of Israel, the Messiah, restore the kingdom of Israel back to the way it was with Solomon and David. That's what they expected. In fact, Jesus' name, as we talked last week, his name was actually Yeshua, which was, a tr- uh, which was Joshua. He was supposed to be the conqueror. So that's what all the disciples were expecting. So they knew that King Jesus was going to come in and he was going to conquer these Romans that had oppressed them. The only thing is, is Judas started to notice he didn't seem to fit the entire model of king and conqueror. He did to some degree. He demonstrated the power of God, and he demonstrated his authority over the world and creation. But for some reason, he didn't do the things they kind of expected a king and conqueror to do. There was times that when Jesus seemed too passive. They expected him to be the conqueror riding in with a sword. He seemed too passive at times. There were moments when he, he didn't seem to really hate anybody. And they really needed him to hate the Romans. I mean, if he's going to overthrow the Roman Empire, everybody knows a good rebellion starts with a little hate, right? So that's how, and Jesus didn't have any of that. Jesus didn't have any of that. So, so they struggled with that. And then he starts teaching things like love your neighbor. And then he says, he takes it a step further. He says, love your enemy. And they sit back and go, oh, no. Jesus, maybe, maybe you've got this king and conqueror thing mixed up. But that doesn't work very well. And then there was the whole point about the money. He seemed to not really care about money at all. He seemed to kind of just go from one place to another and never really take up an offering and never really gather and build a war chest, which is what you need. He wasn't gathering an army. Every time he got big crowds together, guess what he did? Go away. Every time. Go home. And it's like, Jesus, hold on a second. How are we supposed to build an army, take over, and overthrow the Romans if you're, if you're not caring about raising money, and then every time you go and you teach them, love your enemy, now go home. Jesus, that's not going to start a rebellion. What is, come on. So they all started to recognize that he fit the mold and the power and authority, but yet the behavior didn't exactly fit what they expected. Judas likely thought Jesus was just biding his time. Any minute now, Jesus is going to come in and rip the rabbinical robe off, and he's going to be the king. It's going to happen. We just have to wait. And again, before we sit back and think that that Judas was so over the top and so harsh, let's take a look at what his other disciples said. This is one of the most arrogant pieces of scripture I've ever read, is the response of the disciples. It says in Mark 10, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Not Judas, James and John. Teacher, they said, listen to this, listen to the arrogance. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. That sounds arrogant, demanding. And what do you want me to do for you, he asked. And they said, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. So Jesus, when you take over the throne in Jerusalem, because that's the whole point, right? I mean, that's what we're doing, Jesus. We're taking over the throne, right? So when we get there, uh, can, can nobody's called dibs on those two spots? 
I want, I want dibs on the right and then one on the left. We don't really care who's left or right. Can we just be left or right? Is that cool? Is that fine? We're good? I mean, if you hear it was all about Jesus, what can you do for me? What can you do for me? And it became a problem. And the, all of the disciples, so before we sit back and think Judas was the only one, Judas was not the only one. Here we see the other disciples demonstrating that same exact attitude. And then there was the final straw for Judas when he just couldn't handle it anymore. Remember last week we had the final straw with Caiaphas when, he, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? That was the final straw. Caiaphas was like, I'm done. Well, this, Judas had a final straw too. His final straw was a little bit different. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Now, John is going to remind us in his gospel that this, was a, this very expensive alabaster jar was about a, a year's worth of wages. So the median income here in Virginia right now is about $60,000 per household. So if it's about $6,000 per household, then we are expecting this jar to be anywhere from 30 if you're talking about a single person to 60 if you're talking about multiple household $1,000 jar of perfume. I would not have broken the jar. Just being honest, I would have kept the jar. I would have kept the jar and probably sold it and bought my, my Maserati. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. This was a very expensive jar of perfume, very, very expensive. And when the disciples saw this, the text tells us, they were indignant. They were frustrated. I mean, come on, Jesus, you're talking about taking care of the poor and everything. Come on, Jesus. Why the waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Now, remember, this is more money than many of them, actually all of them, except probably Matthew, had seen in one place at one time. They've never seen anything that valuable before in one place at one time. And yet, here Jesus is allowing this woman to pour this perfume out on himself. And they're like, this is too much, Jesus. What are you, what are you doing here? And then, aware of this, Jesus said, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on her body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Jesus hits him with a two-shot right here. The first thing he says is, quit it. Leave her alone. And then the second thing he says is, and I'm going to die. To which the disciples are probably like, What? They don't understand this idea of Jesus dying yet. They're really struggling with this all the way up until the last moment, and then they're like, oh, he meant it. Like, he really meant that. That's crazy. Now, remember, they don't fully understand he's going to die and everything, and they hear his immediate rebuke to them. And then comes one of my most favorite verses. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel, this good news is preached throughout the world, what she has done, will also be told in memory of her. And I'll be darned if Jesus wasn't right. 2,000 years later, a third of the world follows Jesus. And in every version of the Bible is this story of this woman. And as she demonstrates, what it is is it's an illustration, and there's been sermons preached about what she did. 
of giving everything that she had. Many of us believe this could have been her savings or something to that degree. Giving all of it for Jesus. Surrendering every bit of her, everything she had, leveraging every piece of influence and resources she had to give to Jesus. Sermons have been preached about this. Billy Graham did an amazing one on a crusade one time. Like this is one of these things that absolutely came true. Wherever the gospel of Jesus is preached, people talk about her faith and what she did. But Judah's story doesn't sound like that when people talk about Judas either, do they? Now remember, every time people talk about Jesus, they do talk about Judas too, right? It's just different. It's just different. Sometimes, sometimes we don't recognize that we can be the Judas in the story and not the woman with the jar. Now, John gives us a little bit more detail in his gospel. He gives us a little bit more detail. He actually says that Judas was the one who stirred this up amongst the disciples. He says this, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. This is the same scene, different gospel. So all we've done is move books. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this. Now remember, right here, John, the author, is backing out of the historical reporting, and he's coming out as an interpreter of what had happened, okay? So you got to remember that. When you're reading your Bibles, there's moments, particularly in the Gospel of John, because he's looking back on his life, he does this. He he says a thing, and it describes a scene, and then he backs out and explains that scene in greater detail. So when you're reading your Bibles, particularly in the Gospel of John, you got to pay attention to that. This is what he's done. He backs out for a second, and he said he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, a keeper of the money back, and he used to help himself to what was put into it. In the middle of his gospel, John calls Judas out. He was a thief. He was a bad guy. Now, Judas probably had the gift of money and the gift of managing money, and that's why he was the, the, the treasurer, essentially. And so this is why Judas, he ends up using his gift against Jesus rather than for Jesus, which is a problem, especially if you're a disciple. So back to Matthew's account. Now, <clears throat> let me pause here a second. This happens When you read your Bible, if you have a uh, canonical Bible or you have a Bible with a timeline in it or you have what's called a harmony of the Gospels, if you have any of those, you can read this and it'll actually show you different parts because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all the same story from four different angles, okay? So when you read that or when you read through them, they they are the same story from four different angles. Some of you thought there were four Jesuses, didn't you? I'm just kidding. None of you guys are in here. All of you are very well read. Some of you are like, the son died four times. No, he didn't die four times, just once. Anyway, um, it's, the, it's the same story from different angles and written at different times. So when you read this, you have the opportunity as you're going through. I suggest you do this at some point. It's a great way to study. You can read and find the same story 
in all three, and then you just get a different angle. It's very similar to what um, we would experience in the Marine Corps when we would come back from operations. We would do something called an after-action report. We would all gather around and talk about how the operation did, the good, the bad, and the indifferent. And what ended up happening is I would notice guys on the other side of the squad, same firefight, same group, same, like they are my dudes, right? We just did this together. Their view of what happened was slightly different than my view as the squad leader. Just because there were discrepancies in it didn't mean either one was not true. It simply meant that we saw different angles. So when you read your Bible, do not flee from the idea that they don't say the exact same thing. They're written by different people under one spirit. Somebody say amen. Amen. But written by different people who experienced it from different angles. So do not fear when you do that. And when you read it, I suggest if you haven't done that, grab a harmony of the Gospels and read through it in the order in which it happened. It's very useful. So we just did that. I just took you through that exercise. We read a little bit. We went to what John said where he goes into more detail. Now we're going back into Matthew. Back into Matthew, we find ourselves. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So this was the, this was the thing. Judas needed, to, or the chief priest needed somebody on the inside to turn Jesus over. Because every time Jesus was around, lots of people were, were around. And for the temple guard to go marching into the uh, Jewish crowd to arrest the teacher, first of all, wasn't a good look. And then there was always the option that that crowd rebelled because he was the leader. And then you have Jews slaughtering Jews, and that's not a look the temple wanted. So they had to handle this. So Judas knew this. He said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Because again, we've got to get away from the crowds. We can't do it in the daylight. We got to get him when he's isolated. Maybe we'll find him somewhere. But up to this point, the only time he'd been isolated was on the road or when he's out in the water walking on water. That's not going to work to turn him over when he's walking on water. Okay? So he's got to find a time to do that. And Judas probably, you know, we're projecting a little bit here. But remember, Judas loved Jesus. (gasps) Pastor, Judas loved Jesus. Yes, I'm going to make that point in just a second too with scriptural backing. But Judas cared for Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He saw the miracles of Jesus. He performed the miracles. He drove out demons in Jesus' name. He was part of all of those things. He's part of all of those things. So for any of you sitting in here, this is for you. This wasn't for the 9 a.m., but this is for you. If any of you sitting in here think you're so righteous that you can never fall, I would like to point you to my friend Judas who saw the miracles, experienced it, cast out the demons, and yet still fell away when the Savior was right there. So that one's free. Won't even pass the offering plate. Anyway, we come to our next, we come to our, some of you are like, oh, he does that? He passes it twice? No, he never does that. (laughs) Doesn't ever do that. Some of the new people are like, this is a weird church. He says a good point, passes the offering plate. We'll find ourselves where Judas is probably not expecting, he's expecting Jesus to rebel if something happens. He's essentially what I think is I think he's trying to force Jesus' hand. So what he does is we get ourselves, we find ourselves in the Passover. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's alone with his disciples. Then he does this really emotional thing where he washes his disciples' feet. And then Peter says, no, 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 you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, I need to wash all of you. And Peter, being an all-in kind of guy, goes, well, then wash all of me. And Jesus is like, you don't understand. 
I probably would have been Peter. But Judas then discovers this plan about going and praying in the garden afterwards, to which Judas, the light bulb goes off. Wait a second. If, he's, if we're about to go and pray and it's dark and there's nobody there, there's not going to be any crowds in the garden of Gethsemane, I can get, oh, I can let them know. And when I let the temple guard know, they'll go up there and they'll get Jesus and it'll be easy. No crowds, no problem. We can easily do this. And then once they get him, then he'll go in and right about the time the temple's about to get after him, he's going to be Jesus and start, you know, some of that Old, that old Testament fire and brimstone stuff. Because we saw the provision miracles. Judas is probably like, I want to see some Old Testament miracles. I want to see some fire from the sky type stuff, Jesus. And he's waiting. And so he has this thought, this is it, got it. And Jesus said this, as like as soon as Judas started to think that, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And Judas goes, that's weird, Lord. (laughs) Somebody's going to betray you? Who would do that? That's crazy. Meanwhile, Judas is probably having an internal anxiety attack because he's been found out. How many of you guys as a teenager, you know, when your mom and dad found you out and that heart starts going real big and you're not sure it's ever going to stop? That's Judas right about now. Dad found out and he's in trouble. He'd been turning his TV on when he'd been grounded. And, got, and Jesus, so he's concerned. Parents, stay looking up here. <laughs> that Jesus is found out. He's got it. So Judas is concerned. And not only that, Judas is also fearful because Peter has been walking around with that stupid sword and he's going to kill me now. That's what Judas is thinking. Like he's ever going to use that. Jesus never let him use that sword, but he might today. He might today. And so we've got a problem. He fully expected Jesus to throw him under the bus. Like, all right, this guy's going to betray us. Get him, kill him. We're going to keep moving. And his disciples, John continues to tell us, stared at one another at a loss to know what he meant by this. And one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, that's, that's John, anytime you see the disciple he loved in the Gospel of John, that's John saying, is John essentially saying, Jesus, love me more. That's what he's doing. I guess when you're the Gospel writer, you can say things like that. Simon Simon Peter motioned to this disciple he's talking about, John, and said, ask him which one he means. Of course Peter did. Peter like, oh, say it. Say it. Say his name, Jesus. We're, about to, we're, about, we're fixing to fix this thing right now. We ain't getting any of this. And leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered. He answered, it is the one whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. And then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do it quickly. What you are about to do, do it quickly. And I think when Jesus said that, the wind went out of the sails of everybody. And he dips the bread. He says, what you are about to do the decision you've already made. I'm not going to try to change it. What you're about to do, do it quickly. Or my man Peter going to cut off your head. And this is a loaded scripture. This is, this is super loaded because of the phrase, Satan entered him. Now, 
This is likely, this is probably because at this point, Judas had accepted the sin of betrayal against the Son of God. So there's a sense in which that makes sense that Satan would enter him. That's one of the thoughts. One of the other beliefs is that it could be a metaphor because there's nothing more evil than turning over the Savior of the world to be killed especially when he's going around healing people. So it could be an either or. It could be quite literal that Satan entered into Judas because of the accepted sin of betrayal against Jesus that Judas had, had committed. Or it could be that John is writing it as if it is the most evil thing somebody could do. It could be literary or it could be literal. And we don't exactly know for sure. We all have our opinions, and you can have those opinions. What we do know, what we do know for sure, is as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. And then Judas went to find the chief priests. I've got him. I've got him. We're good. Come on. We're going to go take care of him. We're going to get him, and it's going to solve the problem. And after Judas leaves, Jesus, looking at his other 11 disciples now, says the strangest thing. When he was gone, Judas said, or Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. All the disciples are probably confused. The wheels may have started turning, though. The wheels may have started turning at this moment. Jesus said that even this horrible act is going to be redeemed for good, and you just have to trust me on it. After this, Jesus would be handed over to Pilate. We covered some of that last week, how they, were man how they managed to do that to condemn an innocent man, the lying that had to go on, the false testimony that had to go on. And then Jesus is scourged, beaten, broken, bloodied. And Judas watches and recognizes that he's the catalyst, that his action was the catalyst that caused the suffering of the Christ. And he begins to realize, uh-oh, this isn't right. Something's wrong here. And then he recognizes any second Jesus is going to stop it, any second. Any second, Jesus is going to stop this. I mean, he had the power to walk on water. He could multiply fish and bread. I mean, Jesus could raise a dead man to life out of the grave, been buried for four days. They say he stinketh. Jesus had the power to do these things. So Judas is probably sitting back like, any time now, Jesus, now, now, Jesus, now. No, no, no. This, and, and he's probably thinking like, oh, they're going to put him. They're going to put him up on the cross, and then he'll come down, and it'll be a really big deal. But he didn't, and he was hanging there. And Judas, overcome with guilt. Here's the thing. You need to remember this. If it's not God's plan, you cannot force His hand. The the Jesus that Judas wanted was not in God's plan. So when Judas tried to force his hand, it backfired. Ladies and gentlemen, every time you try to force your heavenly father's hand, it will not work out for you. It absolutely will not work out for you. And it utterly failed for Judas also. And after he trades Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. We find this. When Judas 
who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, recognized he's not going to stop it. He was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders. This is why I say he loved Jesus. In this moment, his action has caused the suffering. If he was some pathological maniac, he wouldn't feel remorse. He loved Jesus. He probably expected Jesus to come back off the cross, that the minute they put him in the middle of the court and they started beating him, he, he was going to break the chains and be the Messiah. That's what they had seen. That's what they expected. So he loved him. He was filled. I have sinned and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Religious leaders said, what is it to us? That's your responsibility. That sounds like a you problem, Judas. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and then he went away, and he hanged himself. Judas regretted what he did. He traded something meaningless for his relationship with Jesus. And let me tell you something. We all have this temptation. We all have this temptation to trade what is meaningless for our relationship with Jesus. And for a moment, it feels so important. And in the moment, it feels so significant. It feels like that we can do this, we should do this, we ought to do this. But we bargain, eventually we compromise, don't we? Even when we know the right answer, we resist. And in the end, we ultimately trade our relationship with Jesus for something that has, listen to me, no value. We trade our relationship for 30 pieces of silver. And it pales in comparison to the relationship we have with Jesus. The key is we have to get to a place where we stop trying to bargain and manipulate and we simply surrender to what he's going to do. Because if we don't do that, then we run into what Judas ran into, in which he trades his relationship with Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now, you don't have the opportunity to trade Jesus necessarily for 30 pieces of silver, but you do and are tempted to trade your relationship with Jesus for all sorts of things. And the world's going to tempt you, and things around here are going to tempt you. It's not new. This has happened since the moment that Jesus came back. From the beginning, Judas traded his relationship with Jesus. And if you think you will not be tempted in the same way, do not be so naive. You will be tempted to trade your relationship with Jesus. Maybe for some of you, it's not going to be necessarily pieces of silver, but maybe it's your career. You'll trade your relationship with Jesus for your career. Maybe it's not your career. Maybe it's literally wealth. You'll trade your relationship with Jesus to make more money. Maybe it's not money. Maybe it's a certain relationship in your life. You'll trade your relationship with Jesus for that relationship in your life. Maybe it's your identity. 
God's trying to redefine you. And instead, you trade your relationship with Jesus because I have a way I have to look. I have a way I have to seem. There's a perception about me that everybody has to see. I don't know what yours is. Maybe it's success. But we all have the temptation to trade our relationship with our heavenly, with, with the greatest thing. And at first, these seem so nice, don't they? At first, whatever it is seems so good. It seems so great. I mean, there's nothing we can do. And it doesn't happen overnight. It's not like Judas, this had been happening over a period of time. And it's the same thing that's going to happen with your life. It's not going to happen all at once like that. It's going to be pieces of time, here, there, here, there. And before you know it, you've traded your relationship and all you're standing with is a bag of insignificant coins. And it happens slow. And it happens over time. And I think if Judas was to come back today, and had the opportunity to talk to us, I think Judas would sit and say, don't trade it for anything. Judas would say, that sack of coins that you have, that bag of coins, that bag of things that seemed so significant at the time is not important as your relationship with Jesus. And I think if he came back, he would say, take it from the guy who made the biggest mistake in the world. Don't trade don't trade something that's so insignificant for the most important relationship in your life. And that's your relationship with Jesus. So stop resisting. Stop bartering. Stop God, I will if you will. Stop trading things. And simply surrender. He's got it under control. He knows What's going on? The best place you can be is in the center of God's will. Don't try to force his hand. Don't trade. It's a relationship with him. So with that, I would love to pray for you. Lord, God, every one of us here is tempted to trade our relationship with you for something. So Holy Spirit, I pray in this moment that you would ask us this question in our spirit and, and, and help us answer it. Lord, what have we traded our relationship with you for? Holy Spirit, draw a big spotlight on the thing that we've begun, and we didn't even realize we were doing it, but we started counting out the pieces of silver, Lord. God, that we are sitting in a place and we don't even recognize how close to the edge we are, but we've been bartering with you and bargaining with you for so long to get what we want. We are coming to a place, Lord, where we're trading this relationship with you. So Holy Spirit, will you help us ask and answer that question? Is there something in our lives that we are trading for you? 
Because Lord, remind us it's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's not worth that relationship. It's not worth that career. It's not worth the money. It's not worth the success. It's not worth our own personal identity. It's not worth whatever that thing is in our life, God. Help us, guide us, remind us, Lord, that it's not worth it. Let us learn from Judas' experience. God, we love you, and we praise you. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.